Well, he is risen. Yeah. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 22. That is where we will gaze into and consider the wonders of God in his word this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 22. I used to have fairly regular, sincere conversations with a co-worker of mine about Christianity, his faith, my faith, theology. See, he was, a, he was a brilliant mind. He was once training for a career in ministry and then moved on to medical school. Um, just brilliant and just a, a funny guy. But somewhere along the way, he, he had um, become an atheist, completely rejecting the faith. And so a lot of our conversations revolved around this, this topic. And, and, and like I said, they're very sincere, very candid, and uh, um, just good conversations, honestly. He was a good, uh, a good conversation partner. And, and, and one day, though, we came to an impasse regarding the Christian faith that, that he had left. And, and I asked him this question. I said, what if you knew 100% that the resurrection of Jesus was real? Would you believe? And his answer without hesitation was yes. You see, even, even he, as a, as a professing atheist, understood the world-changing nature of this event. And, and in light of that, I want us to consider a question this morning. What if Jesus had not risen from the dead? Perhaps to ask it another way is, what is the cross without the resurrection? What is our faith without the resurrection? Here in our passage this morning, Paul will entertain this very idea. What if Jesus was not raised from the dead? What would Christians lose if there was not a bodily resurrection? And as we will see, the fallout of such an alternate reality would be widespread and devastating. In short, Christians would lose Everything And Paul is up front about that. So we can't consider this passage in, in 1 Corinthians without considering the great narrative of all of Scripture. And, and if those of you who have been joining us in our uh, adult course seminar this season, Biblical Theology, Seeing Jesus in the Whole Story of the Bible, this will be pretty fresh. You see, from the time of Adam, humanity and all creation has languished under the curse of sin and death, a potent cocktail. Can't have one without the other. And it reigned over all mankind, just as we, we have heard this morning. However, God promised from the very beginning to undo this curse, both sin and death, through a man. And as the story goes, we learn this man will be a king who suffers and dies in order to save his, his people. And this man is proven to be Jesus, who is the Son of God. And he is a king who delivers both righteousness and eternal life through his life, death, and resurrection. He creates a new people, his church, who live in light of the gospel work he has done today. It's the big story. And now in the immediate context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he is, is forced to remind them of these realities. You, you may be familiar with the Corinthians. They're, they're kind of a messy bunch, aren't they? Uh, we don't have time to get into all of their problems, but we see a consistent struggle with purity and unity within, the, within this church. 
But here in our passage, Paul is addressing a specific teaching that has come up in the church. Apparently, some among them have, have started to teach that there is no resurrection of the dead, that, that saints who have died, people who have died, will not be raised again. And so here in the context of our passage, Paul begins to address this essential doctrinal issue. But before he, he begins to address the Corinthians on theological grounds, he makes a strong case on the historical grounds of Christ's resurrection. You see, all of our theology is born out of God's works in creation, historical works. Specifically, most clearly, we see God in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul roots Christ's resurrection in history and says, He's the risen Christ has appeared to me. And, and he runs down the list of others to whom he's appeared. And then, having established this historical reality, he, he, he points out the implication of their assertion. If there is no resurrection of the dead, in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. This, of course, is impossible, as Paul has just made clear. Christ has been raised from the dead. But still, Paul decides to entertain this hypothetical notion that Jesus has not been raised from the dead to show how it effectively strips the Christian faith of any value, making it worthless. So this is the context of our passage. Look with me. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 22. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we will consider this passage in two parts. Part 1, verses 17 through 19, we will see, Not raised, the curse remains. And then part two, in verses 20 through 22, we'll see raised, the curse is broken. You see those, those two parts here. So look with me now at uh, verse, verses 17 through 19, part one, not raised, the curse remains. Paul uses a simple logical argument here to show the devastating fallout that follows if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Now, the overarching outcome is that without, without the resurrection of Jesus, the Christian faith is futile. That is, it's empty, it's worthless, fruitless, it is nothing. Why? Well, Paul unpacks the futility of this resurrectionless faith by pointing out the elements that make it up. A resurrectionless faith means that sin remains and Death remains. Two aspects of a resurrectionless faith, sin and death. 
In, poor, in, in, in short, when Paul says here, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Essentially, what he's saying is, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then you have no forgiveness of sin and you have no hope in death. You're still a slave to sin, and when you die, you die. You are not saved from death, but you perish. So let's consider these in turn. First, sin remains. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. So as we said, the better way, uh, uh, another way to think of this is if Christ has not been raised, uh, you are a sinner. You are, you are still a slave to sin. Now, we can, we can read this, actually, this way. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. No and. So we have an and in English here, but, but, but the Greek leaves it out. So what Paul is saying is that to understand what futile faith is, it's this. You have no forgiveness of sins. The no forgiveness of sins describes what the futile faith is. Now, this is an astounding statement. Because when we, when we think of sin being forgiven, where does our mind typically go? Our mind usually goes to the cross, right? And, and this, this is right because Scripture tells us, Romans 5, 9 proclaims, We have now been justified by what? His blood. Likewise, Colossians 1.20 declares that through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile all Things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, in Colossians, Paul writes that God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we, we rightly think of sins being forgiven at the cross. If this is the case, if that's the reality, then Paul must be saying this. If Jesus was not raised, then there was no perfect sacrifice for sins. You are still a slave to sin. Either Jesus was not, a perf- was not perfect in his life and death, or God rejected his work. It's the only possible conclusion. Jesus was sinless. This means Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. This is why for Paul, as it should be for us, the cross and the resurrection are a package deal. One cannot really be separated from the other. Jesus' resurrection ties directly to the forgiveness of sins. It does so in two ways. One we've already mentioned. Jesus' resurrection means he was the perfect sin-atoning sacrifice. And two, Jesus' resurrection means he continually intercedes for us in heaven. Let's consider a few verses. In, in Hebrews 10, 1 through 14, the author there heralds the perfection of Christ's sacrifice of himself. It, he contrasts this single sacrifice of Jesus against all the repeated Old Testament sacrifices under the law, which he says could never take away sin. Then we read this in, Hebrew, in Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time 
until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when Jesus offered himself as a one-time sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting at that time for enemies to be made a footstool under his feet. Now this is a key phrase for us because... This is actually, it occurs in our passage, but it's actually a reference to the Psalms where the psalmist prophesies that one day God's anointed Messiah, the king, a living king, would set down at the right hand of God and the enemies would be, and his enemies would be made a footstool under his feet. A living king, a living Messiah would do this. Jesus is able to sit down at God's right hand after the sacrifice of himself Because he was raised from the dead. What is the penalty for sin? The wages of sin is death. Peter tells us in his first sermon in Acts 2 that it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. He was raised from the dead because his sacrificial work was perfect and complete. Hebrews 10.14 doubles down on this. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? Or why was Jesus seated at God's right hand? Why was he raised from the dead? For by a single offering, he had perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. So Jesus was raised because he was the perfect sacrifice for sins. Death, the consequence of sin, could not hold on to him because he was not a sinful sinner. And, it, and he continues, even now, in his resurrected body to intercede on our behalf. So, our second point under this, Jesus lives forever to intercede. Again, Hebrews offers us insight into this unsearchable benefit of Jesus' resurrection. Not only does his resurrection mean that he was perfect in his sacrifice to atone for sins, but his resurrection means that he lives forever as an advocate to the Father on our behalf. Hebrews seven twenty four through 25 But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus has risen, he continues forever. And what does he do with all of that eternal time? With his resurrected eternal life, he intercedes for you and he intercedes for me. Not because of what you or I have done, but because of what he has done in his sacrifice on the cross. In this way, Jesus, through his resurrection, saves even the most distant, rebellious sinner and the weakest struggling brother or sister among us. Because his sacrifice is not only perfect, but he is continuing to advocate for us before the Father. So in sum... If Jesus was not raised, then there was no perfect sacrifice for sins, and there is no one to intercede for us. You are still a slave to sin, and, and, and Jesus was not the perfect sacrifice. This is, just, this, is, this is just one aspect of what it means to have a futile faith if Jesus has not been raised. Now, the second aspect organically connects to it. If sin remains, then what else remains? death. Verse 18, we see the curse of death. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
So the natural result of sin is death, and, and therefore death also marks a futile, worthless, fruitless, resurrectionless faith. If Jesus had not been raised, then sin remains, and the natural result of sin remaining is death. This is why Paul begins verse 18 with then. If no resurrection, then sin. If sin, then death. Who would uh, some of these who have fallen asleep been? He, he, he describes that, he says that Jesus, uh, he says that those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, in Christ, have perished. Who, who are these who have fallen asleep? Well, some of Paul has just mentioned in, in earlier in our chapter that there were about 500 people that Jesus, the risen Christ, appeared to. And he said some of those have fallen asleep. So he, he's referring to some of them, I think. But I also think he's, he's referring to some of the Old Testament saints as well. In, in Hebrews 11, we get, we get this long list of, of Old Testament saints who are looking in and hoping and longing for God's redemption. Among those, we see Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. The list continues. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. It goes on. And Hebrews 11.13 tells us this. These all died in the faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These sleeping saints died in faith that God would save them from their death. They lived and died longing not for an earthly home, but for a better country, a heavenly city whose, whose foundations were laid by God. So though they were before Jesus historically, they trusted in God to redeem them, though they couldn't quite see how it would happen. What they needed was a forerunner. They needed someone who would go to the links that no one else had gone to before. They needed someone who would cherish God and his word so perfectly that he would be obedient to death, even death, on a cross to the point of shedding his own blood. They needed someone who would defeat sin and death. If Christ had not been raised, then sin and death had, had not been defeated. These sleeping saints, then, are dead and never coming back. Their hope in God, which ultimately rested in Christ, though they couldn't see it, was a fruitless, empty hope. Wasted. This, according to, according to Paul, is a pitiable estate. In verse 19, look with me. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Christ goes on to say, if death continues, if, if, if this curse of death has not been overturned, and if this curse of sin has not been overturned, then the result is pity. And that means, uh, th th it means that our hope in Christ stops at the end of this life. And if our hope in Christ is only in this life, then it is really no hope at all. No resurrection from the dead is utterly contrary to the Christian faith, which looks to God to, to deliver on future promises. In the face of sin, suffering, and death, we look to eternal life the hope that God will raise us. Without those future promises coming true, our faith is built upon a lie. 
Even the joy and peace that we might have experienced to some degree in this life will actually prove to be nothing more than a taunt and a mock on the way to the grave. So, I think Paul, hope you agree, has effectively shown these, these Corinthian Christians just how tragic their hasty words and bad theology regarding the resurrection is. If Jesus had not been raised, then there was no perfect sacrifice for sins, and if there is no one to intercede for us, we are still slaves to our sin. And if Jesus had not been raised, then there is no hope for you or anyone who has put their faith in Christ to be raised from the dead. You are still a slave to death. This is a pitiful state. This is a futile, useless, empty, worthless faith. So Paul has shown the error of the Corinthian way, and now he is going to show how Jesus' resurrection, he's done with hypotheticals, and he's going to move to reality. He's going to show how Jesus' resurrection fits into the entire scheme of redemptive history, how this, this one moment is the greatest, most central point in this entire epic that God is writing. So look with me at part two of our passage, verse 20 through, verses 20 through 22. Raised, the curse is broken. Here in verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here Paul, as we noted, done with hypothetical reality, done with, with meeting the Corinthians on their side of the line, and now he's telling them how things really are. One commentator calls verse 20 one of the greatest contrasts in all of the Bible signaled by those two words, but now. There's, there's a lot of contrast in Scripture, and, and he says this one, when we see but God or but now, this is, this is perhaps the greatest one. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And notice how Paul describes the risen Christ. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what are first fruits? This is fitting given where we've been in Mark, where we saw the sower going out to sow seed, right? And what's his desire? What's his goal? It's to bring up a harvest. And he knows that a harvest is coming when the first fruits of, those, of, the, of that harvest show up. They're the signal, the indicator, the guarantee that a greater harvest is coming. So here Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. The bodily resurrected risen Lord Jesus is the signal. He is the indicator. He is the guarantee that there will be a harvest of risen saints from the dead. Second fruits, if you will. Jesus' resurrection literally makes the Christian faith a fruitful faith rather than a fruitless one. And we will be raised in new, imperishable, heavenly bodies just like Jesus was. Even if, even if we live to see his return and we don't actually die here on this earth, we will inherit that imperishable body. Paul says later in our chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 
verses 50 through 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. So, Paul is describing here the overturning of the curse of sin and death. And he's doing so on a cosmic scale, which he will unpack for us now. Because what are, what are the reasons underlying what's happening? What's, this, what's the explanation of Jesus being risen from the dead? In verses 21 through 22, he puts it this way. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here Paul gives, gives the, the reason Jesus' resurrection guarantees the resurrection of dead believers. That's what the four indicates here. He is, he is explaining how his resurrection secures the resurrection of those who die in him. And to show how this is possible, he points us all the way back to who? A man. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Well, who is this man? It's Adam. And on the surface, the explicit curse here is death. As, a, as by a man came death, so as by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. But the presence of death here indicates the implicit curse, sin. By pointing to Adam, Paul is drumming up the fall in all its elements, not just death, but sin as well. And by pointing to the reality that it's a man, we get this, this, this precious Christological truth, that is, a truth about who Jesus Christ is. He is not only the Son of God, as we've been seeing in Mark all along, but he is truly and fully a man. For there had to be a man come who would redeem the sin of men. And, and because of Jesus' sinless nature... The curse of death had no hold on him. We're seeing the richness now by pointing to the fall of, of Jesus' resurrection. Paul is, is saying we need to consider both sin and death in Christ's resurrection. Since death could not hold him, it will not hold those who have cut ties with Adam by uniting themselves to Christ. Thus, if those who have fallen asleep are united to Christ in faith, they are to be resurrected as he was, no longer under the curse of Adam. So if, if, if they're risen from the dead, this must mean that their sins are forgiven also. So Jesus' resurrection reversed death, and it also reversed the curse of sin. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. This puts the finishing touches on Paul's proclamation 
in verse 17 that we are still in our sins if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. By Jesus' blood, all sins are forgiven those in him. And God's wrath is fully satisfied. So there's an interesting way to think about verse 22. It says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What's the differences between, what's the difference between all here? Well, that all in Adam is completely inclusive. That's everyone in the human race dies in Adam. It's not the same with the all in Christ. The all in Christ is exclusive. Only those in Christ, united to Christ by faith, have their sins forgiven and will not and will be resurrected. So with the resurrection of Christ comes the reversal of the curse of sin and the reversal of the curse of death brought in by that one man, Adam. So Jesus is the promised offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15, who crushes the head of the serpent. He destroys the works of the devil. He destroys sin and death. He is the new Adam, as we heard in our scripture reading this morning, the second Adam that all redemption history has been waiting for. There is a living man reigning on the throne right now, and he is the resurrected Lord Jesus. This is the world that you and I live in. So how do we live in it? For all in Christ, sin and death no longer hold sway. Rather, freedom and life are the reality. In the present, we see most of this play out as a spiritual reality. Christians walk in new life, free from the condemnation of sin, and no longer fearful of a hopeless death. We know sin and death are no longer the final word. That when we die, uh, we will be with Christ and we will be raised up with him in the last day. This is why Paul declares just a few verses later, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul is making the case for us here that the resurrection of Jesus fuels and empowers our faith because of the resurrection we are truly free from sin. This is why he ends this entire chapter with with, uh, this verse that Cody actually prayed this morning. We are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, we are free from sin, and we are free from death. What does this look like for us, practically speaking? How do, how do, we, how do we work this out in our everyday lives? Well, we put off the flesh and we put on Christ. We walk in new resurrected life. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. And when we do sin, we have the perfect sacrifice and the perfect intercessor for us. We are free from sin. 
Well, Christians were no longer slaves to, and, to, to the fear of death. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up. And even though we still feel the very real effects of death, now we take courage in this. We don't lose heart, even though the outer self is wasting away. We know that the Holy Spirit is renewing us in the inner man. Through the resurrection, Jesus has turned death on its head. Rather than beat us down, death and its varied sufferings actually prove to work glory for us. Every Christian death now, whether it's unexpected and tragic or anticipated and peaceful, has meaning. It is not meaningless or pointless. It brings glory to God because now to depart is to be with Christ and it will culminate in our resurrection with him. So the aches and pains of this life will give way to imperishable stuff that we can't even fathom now. New bodies made in the image of the man of heaven. This is what awaits us. The last enemy to be defeated is death. In light of this future promise, as we said, we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. So, when Jesus had overturned the curse of all creation in this epic of redemption history, which is the fulcrum of the entire narrative, changed everything. And, and, we, and we know that we should walk in the freedom from sin. And we know that we walk in freedom from death. But, but what, how does this play out when we're in the throes of sin? When we're in the throes of death and reeling? How does this play out? What does it look like? I, th- I think it looks a little bit... Like this, breakfast with the risen Lord Jesus. Now now stay with me for a moment. Let's consider in the the big scheme of this, this massive epic, the great work that God has done in the resurrection, let's consider another narrative, another event in human history. One that happened not too long after this universe-altering, curse of sin and death-breaking resurrection. It happened at the Sea of Galilee, where some disciples, some of Jesus' disciples, had decided to go fishing one night. Do you remember this story? It happens in John 21, last chapter of John. In John 21, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples a third time. And Peter and several others are, have, have fished through the night, and they have not caught anything. And as dawn breaks, they catch sight of Jesus on the shore, though they don't know it's him. And, and Jesus then initiates a recreation of a reminiscent scene. Jesus instructs the disciples to cast their nets in again. One more time, just as he did when he first called them in Luke 5. So there in Luke 5, the disciples too, they had fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus says, 
cast your nets into the sea again, they obey, and they pull in a massive catch of fish. And what does Peter do in that moment? Do you remember? Peter runs to Jesus and falls on his knees and says, Depart from me. I am a sinful man. Now here, in this story in John, we have the same thing happening. Only this time, it's the risen Lord Jesus who gives the command. The results are the same. The divine reenactment opens the eyes of John, and he says, it's, it's the Lord. And when Peter hears this, what does he do? Scripture tells us he, 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 his response is this. He casts himself into the sea. Rather than, than wait to get, it even says later, and they weren't that far off. They were only about 100 yards. He could have just waited to get there, but instead he throws himself into the sea to get to the Lord. What is he doing? We don't know. We just know he's trying to get to the Lord. Could it be perhaps that he's, he's going once again to tell Christ, depart from me? Why would he do that? Well, because Peter is on the hills, the hills of the sin of his life. Perhaps the greatest sin of the ages, denying Jesus not just once, but three times. If that is what Peter's goal is, we don't ever get a chance to hear him tell Christ to part. Before anyone can say a word, Jesus invites him to come in and have breakfast. And Jesus serves them and they eat. And then Jesus proceeds to ask Peter three times if he loves him, what's he doing? He moves Peter to the point of grief and distress, who says, who says, you know, Lord, I love you. Amazingly, Jesus does not bring up Peter's sin, even though everyone knows that's where these, these questions of love are coming from. Peter himself locked eyes with Jesus after he denied him. But instead of, of bringing up that sin, like the father to whom the prodigal son was running to, a coat of grace and a ring of mercy are thrown over him. And Jesus affirms Peter's relationship with him and affirms his love for him and then tells him to walk in light of that and feed my sheep. So just as when Jesus first called Peter, who was very much aware of his sin, Jesus calls Peter still who is still very much aware of his sin again. Peter is still a sinner, and Jesus is still a Savior. You see, the resurrection is the greatest, most epic moment in history of the earth, but it's also the most personal. The resurrected Lord Jesus seeks Peter out, comes to him, reminds him of how he called him before, fellowships with him, has breakfast with him, all to affirm Peter and let him know that Jesus will not abandon him in his sin. This is what strengthens Peter to walk in the freedom of that sin, to do the work that Jesus has called him to do. It's the security that the risen Lord Jesus gives him. See, it's 
this most epic event for all of Adam's race. But Jesus comes to Peter and says, this resurrection, Peter, was for you. And that's what he says to each one of us. This resurrection is for you. Jesus also strengthens Peter in his as he looks towards his death. Jesus, already looking into Peter's future obedience, describes Peter's future death to him. John, John lets us in on this. Apparently, it was something they all understood when, when, when Jesus described how Peter would die, because John says he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So even in his death, Peter will bring glory to God. Therefore, he need not fear the outcome of that death, though, as Jesus makes clear, he might not look forward to the pain of suffering of it. This is the paradox, the reality of death that we're in now. We can grieve it. We cannot want to experience it and the sufferings it brings, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We don't fear the outcome of it. We take joy in the fact that even in death, we bring glory to God. I think that's what's being communicated here. Christian death actually glorifies God. The only question is, what kind of death will that be? So Peter would not only glorify God in his loving of Jesus' sheep in life, he would glorify God in his death. The resurrection of Jesus ensures that Peter will endure and be kept forever, and this is because the resurrected Jesus will keep him. Even in death, there is no meaningless death in the Christian faith. It all brings glory to God. On this side, it may look tragic. It may be unexpected. But because of the resurrection, we take comfort and hope in this reality that it is working to build a greater glory that we will be swept up into. So, in light of his resurrection, Jesus tells Peter, come and live in light of that freedom. Your fellowship is not broken with me. There's forgiveness here. And you need not fear death, though that is where In Peter's case, it would take him this gospel ministry feeding his sheep. And Christ says the same to us. The risen Lord says the same to us. This resurrection was for you. Your sins are forgiven. You will be raised from the dead. So if the resurrection never happened, the curse of sin and death remain. The Christian faith is futile. But Christ has been raised. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he reigns from the throne of heaven, victorious over sin and death. And because of that, we walk in that new life now, free from the condemnation of sin, free from final death. And we will be raised up with him to walk with him in all eternity. We have not seen him with our eyes, but we will. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. Christ has been raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead for you. Pray with me.